Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Romans 8 for a moment. As we continue our class on the Westminster Confession of Faith, we are in chapter 10 this morning on effectual calling. So Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have uh, given us another day to honor you and glorify you, and especially this, your Lord's Day, where you've called us to rest in you and to worship you and find rest in our worship of you. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, guide us, that you would bless us, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds, sanctifying us. And, Father, as we contemplate our salvation, which you have given to us as a gift from beginning to end, Lord, we we pray that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's, uh, you've picked up a copy of the Ordos, or not the Ordo Salutis, that's what I have written at the top of my page, of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, and this section of the Confession of Faith begins what in Reformed theology is known as the Ordo Salutis, which is a fancy way of saying something very simple, which is uh, the order of salvation. The order of salvation, how God, and it's, this is a, this is something that you should have in your head and something that you should understand, that our salvation is not what we, what? You're like conducting me. You're conducting me. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> what? Sorry, I got distracted there. Um, what you should have in mind is salvation is not something that we do. Salvation is something that God does. And so the work of salvation is not our own merit being applied to God's account and his balance sheet. It's God's work being applied to us. And that's huge. Do you realize that that's what separates us from virtually every other Christian denomination? Right? To be reformed means to have a view of salvation that is monergistic. 
It is God's work applied to us. It's Christ's redemption applied to us. It is not synergistic. It's not a cooperation between us and God. It is God's work in us, okay? And that will be pounded. It's already been pounded home, starting in the last chapter of the Confession, uh, chapter 9, on the states of the will and uh, the fall. But remember, remember the previous chapter, number, um, at number 3, we talked about the will of man. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. You know, full stop. Has lost the ability to will anything good concerning or accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So you can't, by your own power in your natural state, convert yourself or even prepare yourself to be converted. Why? You dead. Okay? You dead. All right, so... So the Ordo Salutis is uh, officially where we uh, start going next in the next chapters, and it begins here with effectual calling. Now you'll notice something interesting, that there is no chapter on regeneration in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is kind of mind-boggling. Well, this is the chapter on regeneration, okay? I mean, essentially, this does handle that new birth. And as far as an order of salvation, right, we like to think one thing happens, then the next thing happens, then the next thing, right? But often, I mean, many of these are simultaneously at the point of regeneration, right? That they, they, they fall at the same point. Um, but there is, uh, there is sort of a chronological order or a logical order to these things as well. And Reformed theologians have been arguing about the order of salvation since they uh, started talking about it. So um, you can look into that. If you want to take a deep dive into the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Redemption, get this book. It's by John Murray. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Really good, um, fairly brief book that will... Uh, encourage you. The first half is, is about Christ accomplishing redemption, and then the second half of the book is about how it's applied to us. And uh, I think it's the best thing out there on the topic. So, John Murray. All right, so let's read the first section and talk about effectual calling. <clears throat> So number one, all those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. By his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good 
and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. All right, so I took so many notes on this section that they virtually make no sense. And so now I have to order it. But, um, and there are other heavy topics to hit uh, when it comes to this section of the confession as well. So, the first thing to, to note is, what does it point to first? The answers are all written on the page. You, that's where you should look. Predestination. Right? All those whom God hath predestined unto life. And what does it mean to be predestined? What does that even mean? Called beforehand? Like a literal predestination? Yeah? Yeah? That God, the, um, before the foundation of the world, right? Chosen in Christ. That there's a specific people that God elected, that God chose, that God set apart for salvation. It was a specific group of people. It was not a hypothetical, potential group of people. It was names that God had in mind. Right? Actual names of people that he chose. And so all those whom God hath predestined unto life, God does that work, and those only, right? So only the predestined, nobody else get this effectual calling, right? Outside of the elect, ain't nobody getting an effectual call. They're getting a call, but there are two different kinds of calls, right? Classic reform distinction between the two calls is there's a general call and or a universal call and an effectual call. What is a universal call? What is that referring to? Come to me and find rest for your souls. Right? There's a call that we make to all people, not knowing who's elect. Um, evangelism is the uh, process of going out, giving the universal call, and then seeing who God has elected, right? Who God draws to himself and calls effectually. So yeah, the, the universal call is the preaching of the gospel. It is to be done in all nations, tribes, tongues. It is to be uh, done around the world. Um, <clears throat> The uh, overtures of grace and the gospel addressed to all men without distinction. Uh, a verse like this makes this distinction. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay? That puts the, the general call and the effectual call right next to one another. Many are called by the gospel proclamation. Few are chosen by God's predestinating grace. Okay. And then the effectual call is a call that ushers men into a state of salvation and is therefore effectual. Right? It affects something. It, it is a change of status. 
it's not just a, uh, well, we'll get there in a sec. We'll get there in a sec. Any questions at this point? Any thoughts? Concerns? Pretty clear. No controversy yet. I mean, unless you reject predestination. And then you're pretty much just, you checked out a long time ago. <clears throat> All right. All those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, God is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. So God does this. God is pleased to do it. God does it when? When he wants, right? In time, in, in uh, uh, the, the call, this effectual call is not like predestination, which happens before the foundation of the world. This happens in time, okay? This happens uh, in your life. And how does he do it? What are his means of doing that? Visions from the skies, his word and his spirit. What does that mean? So, how does God effectually call his predestined children? No, we're still on word and spirit. What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. Um, prayer? Uh, no. I would say that prayer is a fruit of this. It is a postscript to the effectual call. Right? It, it is a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You first have to have a work of grace in the heart before you would do any sort of prayer that wasn't just self-referential. That actually had the grace of God in mind. So yeah, it's a fruit. It's related, but it it's, it's a fruit that follows from that. So the, nor, the, the, the way that God calls is by his word and the spirit working in his word. Okay? The spirit working in his word. It, that is the way that God works. Okay? How many of you came to faith away from the word of God? I mean, how many of you would have known any truth away from the Word of God? Um, you may have had religious sort of, uh, you know, mystical feelings away from the Word of God as just a human being who, who ate a, a bad piece of chicken. But you did not truly come to terms with God until you learned of Him from His Word. Some of you were converted by the preaching of the word. Amazing, right? That God would, God's spirit would work in you while somebody is preaching the word of God. What an incredible gift, right? Some of you, it was by reading the word of God. Suddenly, you were reading the word of God and the spirit illumined your mind and you were like, okay, that isn't just ancient literature. That isn't just, you know, on the par with, with, uh, you know, Greek tragedies. 
It is much more than that. And your eyes were opened to see God in his word. That's part of this effectual call. That's part of this, um, this, uh, this call that... Why do we call it an effectual call, though? That's what I want to get to now. Why is it called effectual? It does something. Like, normally a call, we just give out a call, and people have to, on their own, respond to that call. But God's call goes out, and it's like, whack! And changes you. Right? It affects something. Um, there's one, uh, who is this? I think this is in Murray. He says this, and it's very helpful. A summons issued by a court, right? We could call this the effectual summons as well. But um, and a, a summons affected by a court, right? Some of you have been summoned to court, whether for ju- jury duty or less noble reasons. Um, you've, you've been uh, summoned. A summons issued by a court does not of itself empower us to appear in court doesn't empower us to be there. It just tells us to be there. It gives us warrant to appear, and it requires us to appear, but it does not actually bring us into court. That depends on our own strength and will. Or, perchance, it depends on the force applied by the, effect, the executive officers if we apprehended and compelled them to appear. It is wholly otherwise with God's summons. The summons is invested with efficacy by which we are delivered to the destination intended. We are effectually ushered into the fellowship of God. And that's why I say there's no chapter on regeneration, but but these are so closely tied. If the call is effectual, if it does something, well, then that's the new birth taking place. And so there's no way to, in my mind, you can separate these two things. The moment God effectually calls, his grace to you is irresistible, and you are being born anew by his power in that call. Okay, so if there's any separation, it's by a measurement in time that we don't even know exists. I think it's simultaneous. And then look at the verbs here. Look at the verbs in the rest of this this first section. So by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, remember the previous chapter, in which they are by nature, brings them into grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, and then all of these, uh, what are ING verbs called? Um, What? Participles. Thank you. I knew a homeschool mom would give me that. Participles. Right? Describing this, this new state. Um, and they're glorious. You should think about how, what an honor this is that God would do this to you. If you are in Christ. If you are united to Christ. If he has effectually called you. Listen to what he does. He enlightens your mind spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. I mean, just there, if we stopped there, it'd be like, whoa. I can actually understand the things of God. He's almighty. He's transcendent. 
He is without body. He, I mean, he is other in so many ways, right? There are attributes we will never ever share with him. He is, he is glorious. He is perfectly holy. He's inconceivable to us. And yet, the Spirit in us helps us to understand what is even inconceivable to us. Enlightens your mind spiritually and savingly, right? To put your trust in God. And then, taking away your heart of stone and giving unto you a heart of flesh. So that transformation that, that the, um, <clears throat> the prophet uh, Ezekiel talks about, right? Taking away your heart of stone. What's it like to live with a heart of stone? It's like living in deadness, right? Stone is dead. Stone don't do anything. It's only acted upon. It doesn't do anything of itself. Stone, hardness, just an inability to respond to the goodness and glory and grace and wonder of God. Inability. And so that stone is taken out and by God's you know, new birth by this effectual call, he gives you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. a new heart also will I give to you and a new spirit will I put within you and I, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. That's wonderful. A soft heart, a flesh, fleshy heart that's responsive to the things of God. It loves God, that enjoys God, right? Some of you, some of you, that was a profound, instantaneous, incredible change. It was like one day you woke up, you went to bed the previous day with a hard heart and you woke up with a soft heart. That's how it was with me. It's not how it is with everybody. Some, some they... God slowly seems to soften that heart, even though regeneration is instantaneous. You know, there seems to be works of the Spirit leading up to it. But, uh, you know, I went, I went to bed one night uh, against God, and the next morning God had sort of subdued me and my spirit. And it was wonderful to have a sense of the uh, new softness of heart, of fleshiness of heart, going from rejecting the things of God to saying, no, no, forgive me, give me yourself. Let me know you. And so um, the heart changes, the, 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 the core of our affections. And then renewing your, he also renews your wills. And by his almighty power determines them to that which is good. Okay, remember the previous chapter, natural man, you're fallen, you're just determined to do evil. That's what you're inclined toward. But this, with this regeneration, effectual call, whatever, whatever you want to call it, comes that change of will. And now you can actually freely choose to do good. And good that that is not civically good, 
you know, just good in the sense of caring for people around you and, and uh, doing acts of kindness, but good in the sense that they actually please God. He says, well done, right? He says to you, good job. That pleases me. That honors my son. That is good work. And so he renews your wills, which had been corrupted, which had been fallen, which were unable to choose the good and do anything pleasing to God. Now you can do that which is pleasing to God. That should inspire us, right? That should make us want to do good works so that we can hear the well done, good and faithful slave from God, shouldn't it? Reformed people don't often talk about good works. We leave the quasi-good works to the Roman Catholics. But then we do things that are, are pleasing to God and should seek to do those things that are pleasing to God. And then, and effectually, it says, drawing them to Jesus Christ. You're drawn to Jesus Christ. You are not... Uh, you're, he doesn't dangle something before you and say, well, let's see. Let's see what this person does. You know, puts the carrot before you and wants to know whether you're going to reject it or not. He just grabs you by the hand and pulls you along. He draws you. He does that work on your half. There are many who would say that, no, he just dangles the carrot and the one thing you have to do is choose the carrot, right? You got to choose that carrot. Well, that's not drawing. That's, um, that's going in your own power toward his grace. And so then there's this strange last phrase in section one, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. And we keep coming across this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? They're so concerned about the will. And they're so concerned about the, um, that the doctrines of grace have often been disparaged by those who call them, um, who, who, who caricature them as God being... Uh, you know, a, a, uh, an operator of robots and he acts on robots who can't do anything uh, out of their own will, right? And they're, so they're always coming back to this and saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. God doesn't force the will. God doesn't force violence on the will. God doesn't do that. God changes one so that they can freely then choose him which they will inevitably do if he's changed the heart, right? So God does his work, and that work changes the way our wills operate. This is what, this is what Arminians just won't accept about the, the Calvinistic scheme. They're like, oh, you're, you know, it's your view is that man is a robot, and he can't do... No, not according to the doctrines we've laid out. Um, the will is active, Man's will is active. How it fits into the decrees of God, of course, it's a one-to-one -one correspondence. Everything that happens is decreed by God. Yeah, I get that. But 
He's not the author of sin, and we are, we are free agents who out of changed hearts and affections God puts in them choose what's good, right? Judas will not go before the Lord at the end of the ages and say, look, Lord, I wanted to do good and you forced me to do bad. He's going to just have to admit I wanted to do bad and I did bad. That's what I wanted. I chose my highest desire. God didn't change his desires, so he chose freely what was in his heart. God changes our hearts, and then we freely choose to desire, and our desires are changed, and we choose him. All right, so um, there's that. I got a bunch of great quotes around here that I haven't even gotten to. Murray says about this doctrine of effectual calling and regeneration, he says, we may not like this doctrine, but if so, it is because we are averse to the grace of God and wish to arrogate to ourselves the prerogatives that belong to God. And we know where that disposition had its origin. <laughs> he doesn't even say it. He just says, we know where that disposition had its origin. In the evil one. In the evil one, that disposition to want to arrogate to ourselves the things that belong to God, right? And so if you don't like this doctrine, all, all you're saying is, I want to do, I want to do independent of God, I want to earn this, I, wanna, I want to do this. On some level, even if it's one little work of saying the prayer, it's one little work of making a decision, it's one little work of, of giving $10 billion to the, the hospital network. Even if it's that, you're saying, I want to have something that's my own in this equation, and you take it out of God's hands. If you don't like this doctrine, right? But if you love this doctrine, you're like, oh, what a gracious God. Not only has he given me salvation as a gift, but I haven't earned it in any sense, dead than alive, heart of heart than soft of heart. All his work from beginning to end. And that's the glory of Reformed theology, is it exalts God and abases man. It exalts God and abases man, and you're going to see that all the way through this Ordo Salutis, the next seven, eight chapters in the Westminster Confession. You're going to see it pointing out what God has done for you. And your mind should be blown, it should be blown with thanksgiving uh, toward God. Um, all right, any questions? That's the first section, and I'm like probably out of time. No. Any questions, thoughts, concerns, statements? Happy? Does it make you happy? I just want you guys to be happy. I do, ultimately. Joyful and happy.
Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why what's next? Justification is rightfully next. Again, simultaneous with regeneration. And then sanctification follows justification. And sanctification is both instantaneous and progressive, you know, and so uh, it, it, it's difficult. Any other thoughts or questions about this? But, note it, but remember the first passage that I read, Romans 8, 28. Those who were predestined were called, right? He is also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Called are justified, the justified glorified. All God's work. All right. Number two. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Okay? So, they had to very quickly make a statement about what this effectual call is not, because there were these guys called the, the Arminians who made up a slightly different scheme about how this worked. And the slightly different scheme of the Arminians was that God in his foreknowledge, would look forward through time and see those ahead who freely chose him. And then that would sort of work backward to their predestination. Okay? And so, but you see, you see how that's just claiming one little sliver of, you know, synergism one little sliver of something that that I do independent of the sovereign, saving, wonderful, free grace of God, right? That's to make the grace of God contingent, not free. Do you understand that? It says in this statement that this this is out of the, oh man, the, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace. Not contingent, free, uninfluenced by anything else. It derives from God alone. And so they say, no, it's not that he he looks forward and foresees something. No, no, no. You're completely passive until you're renewed and regenerated and made alive and God works in you. And then you are therefore able to answer this call and embrace the grace offered and given in it. Okay, so that whole section's in there to refute the claim of the Arminians. And then what about babies? Oh man, section on infants. They get to next. And of course, this is their question in every era. It's our question Every time, a, a, he, every time a woman is pregnant, right? 
every time a woman gives birth is, you know, is, is my child adopted, an adopted child of God? And how do we make that determination? Well, here's what they say. It's very simple. They say, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he please, pleases. So also are other, all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. That's interesting, isn't it? So elect infants are elect, is what they say. That's their answer. If the, if the infants are elect, they're saved. Okay? I mean, that's a, that's a tight answer, isn't it? I mean, you can't, you can't really disagree with that. If that infant is elect, they will come to faith. But then they make the statement about what are the outward means of that. Because an infant isn't capable of understanding the word of God. You know? Somebody with Down syndrome is not necessarily under, uh, capable of understanding the Word of God. Somebody with other learning disabilities is not necessarily able to understand the Word of God. What do we do with them? Now, if, if we were Arminians, we would say, well, they've got to make a choice. They've got to make a choice. They've got to make a decision for God. And if they don't do that, then God doesn't look through the quarters of time and see that they've done that and, and then work in them. And so it's really cruel the Arminian scheme is really cruel because it rules out anybody with a learning disability. It rules out infants because they can't respond. I mean, put that in your pipe, Arminians. It's terribly cruel. And what, what, what the Westminster says is, no, God, God has his elect. If that child, that infant is, is elect, then they will be with God in heaven. Think of the encouragement given to the child that died of David. He's going from you and you will go to be with him. Think of that, that, that encouragement. Now, does this mean that all the children of believers are elect? It does not mean that. Okay? It does not mean that. Isaac and Ishmael. Right? It does not mean that all the children of believers are elect, but covenant children, those born into, into believers' households, we have great hope that they are in the elect. The unbelieving household that has a child, we would say they don't share that hope. They don't share the same approach. We would presume that their children are bound for hell. Okay? Because God makes promises that he will be a God to us and to our children and our children's children. Okay? Those promises are not fake. They're not meant to psych you out. They're real promises because God doesn't lie. Okay? And so he makes these promises, and yet nowhere does it say that they're... they're um, that there won't be covenant-breaking children of believers. There will be. Okay? 
And so there, there are many in the Reformed world that want to say, if you're born to believing parents, man, you're in. doesn't matter. You're in. Presumptive regeneration. You're regenerated if you're a child of a believer. And we say, no, no, you're going to be saved if you're elect. And we, pres- we, we have a strong hope that children of believers are in a better position than unbelieving children, right? And so... All these questions are sort of compacted into this one, one section. It makes the true statement, the elect infants dying in infancies are elect. And then when we look at covenant theology and how God works and makes promises, then we say, well, he certainly gives us a lot of hope in the salvation of our children. And I'm going to take him at his word, although I know I know there are examples also of, of households where he has rejected one and, and saved another, right? And then we look at the unbelieving household and they have no reason to hope, none. Now there, there are also arguments on this. I think John Piper takes a really weird view on this and John Piper says any infant dying in infancy is elect. All of them, whether your parents are believers or unbelievers, whether you connected to the church, whatnot, he just says they're all elect. And so I don't know how he could ever oppose abortion. I mean, abortion would just become ushering infants into heaven. It would be better to allow them to die in infancy than for them to get to some sort of decision points and, and not make it. And it's, it's really weird. I haven't really figured out the logic of it and how, how that goes forward, but last I read, that was Piper's view, and I probably should go back and review what he says or if he's shifted on that. Um, but I like where the Westminster Confession of Faith falls on this. It just makes a true statement. Elect infants dying in infancy go to heaven. They're regenerated. They're saved. The Spirit works in them in a saving way. And that's, that's what we want to assert. <laughs> we don't know who the elect are and who the non-elect are. We do know that children of believers have a special relationship to God. It's not necessarily salvation or regeneration, but it is different. It is filled with privileges. Okay? Any questions on that that I can't answer? I think I've said about everything I can say on that. I mean, it, any scenarios that you've had to work through and th- think about? Sarah, you have any questions? You just. Interesting. Yep. 
Right, yeah, the Reformed Baptists wouldn't go along with that, but a General Baptist or Fundamentalist Baptist would probably go that direction. There's some age of discretion at which point, if they don't make a decision, it falls on their shoulders and all those sorts of things. Um, and, and this is just clear and tidy and scriptural and doesn't, doesn't say too much, you know? It doesn't say too little. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, anyone who could become a Baptist, whether it be to your advantage or to your have a learning disability that mm-hmm. you fall under that, you would go ahead and make a decision to stay in the family. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, a, a neat paradigm that I just don't see in Scripture. Um, all right, let's, uh, we have like 13 seconds, and I wanted to read the last section. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the laws of the religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may (laughs) is very pernicious and to be detested. (laughs) In other words, um, they're giving a couple categories. They're giving the, the category of somebody who's in the church, who always sits under the ministry of the word, who even has had some common operations of the Spirit. Not saving operations, not regeneration, but just common operations of the Spirit. Some some, um, understanding given, but not in a saving way. They, um, that's not to be saved, that's not an effectual call. And then it says, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved. So anybody who would put forward a universalist paradigm, right, where you don't have to see any operation of the Spirit, you don't have to see any fruit, you don't have to see anything therein, they're like, that should be detested, right? It's pernicious. It does damage to the gospel, right? It completely, completely sucks all the power out of Christ's redemptive work makes the cross superfluous, it makes everything about the Bible unnecessary, right? If everybody's in, if there's no reason to give the general call, if there's no um, special operating grace of, of God, if everybody's just alive, I mean, it's the very opposite of what we would put forward, all dead. And so that's to be detested. I mean, you should get a little sick to your stomach when you're talking to a universalist. Um, I think that's all I have. Whirlwind through effectual calling. Hope it was encouraging to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness, your attention, your love. Father, we are, we are in awe of your work to think that you would take the dead, the hostile, Father, the the filthy, 
and so dearly love them that you give them life eternal. You clean them from their filthiness, Father, and you've done all of this through the work of Christ applied to them. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work. Thank you for the redemption that he won. And Father, I pray that our minds would be filled with thanksgiving as we contemplate your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.